Greetings and welcome to Inside the Master Studio, a behind-the-screens look into the art of GMing. Today we are joined by The Blind Gamer. Uh, hello everyone. I'd like to start from the very beginning. How did you first get involved with tabletop RPGs? So a little bit of background about myself. Uh, I'm actually uh, almost entirely blind. I have a, a very, very small usable amount of vision in my right eye only. I'm completely blind on my left eye. And it gets really interesting when you talk about tabletops because it's the, the question that comes up a lot is how do you actually play when you can't see the dice or even a map? My first experience was in summer camp, of all things. It's called, uh, or it was called Camp Marcella. It was a camp for the blind and visually impaired uh, in northern New Jersey in Rockaway. And uh, my uh, bunk mate, I guess you would call him, his uh, name was Alex, and he was my first DM. We were about, we were the same age, I think. Uh, he may have actually been a year younger. And we had our first game, and that was Call of Cthulhu, of all things, uh, which is a very, <laughs> it's a very interesting game if you've never played a tabletop RPG before, if you get thrown right into a, a Call of Cthulhu game. That was my, my first experience. It was a really interesting one. We didn't have any dice. We had no dice. We had no papers, nothing. We did it entirely by sound because Alex, like myself uh, and everyone at that camp, we all had a visual impairment of some kind. And so we utilized our imaginations more so than anything else to build the world and to build our characters and to keep track of everything. It was a unique experience, if nothing else. Was this just a single night or over the course of the camp? We actually did it a single night uh, for our first campaign, and then we, we liked it, and so we kept doing more. We did one mini uh, one-shot campaign, and then we did, which lasted for about four hours, and then we did another one throughout the course of a few days, and that, that, was, uh, that was pretty much all we did. But from there, you know, that started opening my eyes as a, a GM and a, and a player. Were you able to keep in touch with the players, or did you go your separate ways afterwards? Over the years, we, uh, we ended up going our separate ways, unfortunately, so we never really kept in touch. Is there anything that your first GM did that has influenced how you GM to this day? <laughs> yeah, uh, he was kind of he was kind of an asshole, but at the same time, it, it was that kind of "I'm going to punish you, but you're going to like it" sort of mentality, where you have the brutal dungeon master who, if you screw up or you goof around too much he will punish you severely but also he was fair he was very very fair um in terms of especially because it was my first D&D experience not D&D experience but our, my first RP experience our first tabletop that he rewarded you and he didn't treat you like you were a new player even if you were he made you feel like it was your story he made you feel like it was something that you were you had no knowledge about, but you wanted to learn. You wanted to make that your reality for the for the next however many hours you were at that table. Do you remember your first character? We didn't really have a character sheet. And so he actually assigned us pre-made characters, but I was a uh I was a spry youth. Uh I think my character was in his early early twenties or very late teens and it was uh it was a call of cthulhu game so it was basically um 
you know, along the, the, the verbiage of the mythos. Um, and so the characters were fairly pre-made and generic, but it was still fun. And we still, we got to customize our, uh, skill set, our background and what our characters would look like in terms of the world and, and whatnot. And we even had some customization in terms of our characters' psychological profiles, uh, because he enjoyed giving us mental exercises and mental tasks throughout the campaigns that, um, that really shaped how we, how our characters grew and developed and our psych- psychological profiles that we kind of created, what our character liked, disliked, our fears, our passions, uh, our hobbies, things like that shaped our characters and helped us or hurt us, uh, throughout the course of the campaign. So it was, it was very interesting. Was the setting that you're playing in helpful in getting into the game or did it not have any effect? Uh, well, if I remember correctly, our first game was in 1954 outside the suburbs of Chicago. It was outside of the city of Chicago in the suburbs, uh, was our main, uh, setting for that first one. And it was interesting how he depicted the setting, but it really wasn't integral to getting into the game as much, mostly because we were sitting in the middle of a cabin in the woods. So (laughs) it's a little bit different. After this game, what was the next RPG that you participated in? I don't remember exactly. Uh, I had several different RPG experiences. I I sat in on some games. I actually listened to a lot of uh, podcasts and stuff like that. Back at the time, we had um, different uh, local D&D podcasts, and I, I started learning more about role-playing games, which eventually took me to almost, actually almost immediately, took me to Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition and uh, 3, 3.5, stuff like that. And I started really getting into it, and I just remember going to different games and sitting and not even playing, just listening, just watching. Um, there were some kids at the local library that they were playing, and I just used to sit and I used to listen, you know, while doing some work or, or, or um, you know, even at my school. And so that kind of grew from there. And when did you take the leap into becoming the Dungeon Master? After about the third or fourth game I I sat in and listened on, I I really wanted to try and create a story of my own. uh, Because some of the games I, I listened into, one of them was just, it was a bad game. The DM was basically fighting the players the whole time, and it just... It didn't feel right. It felt like the story was fragmented. And I actually personally love writing uh, quite a bit. I'm a writer. Uh, it's, it's, you know, one of my, it's, if anything, I use it to de-stress. And I think that the beauty of a role play game is that you can take your, your wildest fantasies. You can take your stories and your characters and your creations and you can bring them to life and have other people engage in them, which makes them all the more real. And, um, I had so many great stories that I just decided to jump in and try and put together a group. Being a writer, was it difficult at first giving players free reign in your story? I think it was a little bit difficult, yeah. The 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 thing about being a writer and the thing about being a DM or a GM or whatever you like to call it is... um is that a writer, you have full control. You could play God and no one can question you. If you have a logic hole, if you have a loophole or 
a brain fart or something that just doesn't make sense or you can go back and edit it later. <laughs> like you're, you're fine. No one's going to question you unless you're getting reviewed or, you know, you're having an editor look at it, but you're really not being questioned and you, you get to have this one straight line of, of thought. You get to make a story and then you get to finish it. Uh, with D and D and being a, a DM or a GM, you have these annoying things called players and, you know, these players, they'll say, wait, wait a minute. Didn't you just say that, you know, uh, he had, you know, that key and, and then now he doesn't. What happened? You, there's continuity errors here. And then you have to go back and you're like, oh, wait, I, I, I forgot. Yeah. This guy actually does have that. And then you also have players that challenge your own logic, your own train of thought. You have players that contradict what you want them to do. Uh, if you want the players to go explore this dungeon, then that kind of goes out the window when the player goes, ah, uh, actually, I want to go work at the local inn. <laughs> you know? So so it can really change the entirety of a story. And while you still get to be God, while you still get to be the creator, you don't have as much power as you thought you did. And you kind of start to realize that maybe it's not your job to create as much as it is to design. And it's kind of different because create, you just have a story and you finish it. Whereas design, you have your idea and then you outline it and then you have the players paint the full picture. And that's, that's like my big difference there. So it was a, it was a very surreal experience, uh, fully realizing all of that and changing how I think and how I, I play. Did you start off wanting to GM just a one shot or were you bringing your own world to the table? I started uh, very awkwardly, I, I guess you'd say. I uh, <laughs> I started with an idea and I wanted to build this grandiose story and build this world. And I, I did, but I, I actually ended up doing it. And to be, to be truthful here, I, I still do it to this day. I will start a campaign with a basic idea and I will continuously build the world throughout the campaign and build that story. Uh, and I, I have an idea of where I want it to go. And I have sometimes even the entire story written out, but then it's just like, well, where do I put things? How is the world structured? And half the time I don't know until the players decide to go somewhere. Can you give an example of the type of idea that you start with? Okay, for example, and uh, spoiler alert, because I, I do know my players are going to watch this. Uh, my current players, they actually asked me when this was going to be airing. So I know that they're going to watch this. So for the next like two minutes, just take your earbuds out. The current campaign we're working on right now, it's uh, it's a little weird. We started off, um, my idea was to deal with a plague, deal with a, a mad priest who's trying to work with, you know, necromancy and whatnot. And he's... Uh, He's trying to harness the power of celestial beings in order to manipulate the weave to his own, uh, his own ends and basically take over the world, you know, stereotypical evil villain. And I was not able to make the map because I did not know how, um, how the map was going to change because I actually have, uh, something working in the background and it involves dimensional travel and time travel and, all these weird things that uh, you get in with the multiverse theory. And I like my play style sort of because it's um, the way I, the way I handle my worlds is all of my worlds, every campaign that I've ever done, they're all linked in some way. 
uh, there are very, very thin walls between the worlds. And it is possible in every one of my campaigns to actually leave that campaign and enter an older or a, even a newer campaign with a different world, different characters, different everything. Uh, because the world, the walls around the world that you inhabit are thin in some places. They're very thin. And it is possible to, to travel between them. I, in fact, I have NPCs and, uh, you know, uh, different NPCs that, uh, will travel between the worlds. It's kind of a running joke. I have, uh, an info broker of sorts, the, the, the meta info broker who's super, super meta. And if you can do a quest for him, he will give you meta knowledge and you will be allowed to use that meta knowledge. But the catch is that info broker will give you meta knowledge, but it may not be meta for your world. It may be meta for another campaign, <laughs> which you can get to if you can figure it out, but it's not, it may not be your world. And so it's very hard for me to actually build the world because early game player actions could actually change how I want that world to be shaped from anything from how NPCs are placed to the destruction of cities. Some of my players were having a hard time getting in my, my recent campaign. They were having a hard time getting through the, the first bit. We needed more content because uh, they were kind of stuck on filler. It was interesting because I had to decide, okay, this city that we're going to be starting in, the starting city, uh, it's now infested with a plague. And I had to rewrite all of that. Uh, one of my players changed their backstory, so I had to rewrite that too. And it's just, okay, well, now I have to change half the world and re realign myself to the end goal of my story uh, to figure out what's going on. Do you prefer to have cooperative world building with the players, or do you world build with the players just so you don't have to rewrite what you have written. I would like to cooperative world builds. I think that's a nice idea, but I don't like my players knowing certain details. And so it's, it's a little bit half and half. I like to work with the players, but at the same time, I, uh, I like to have my secrets because there are certain parts of my world that, uh, that can get very interesting and then they, they can evolve into other quests and stuff like that, that really lose their, their charm if the player knows about them or even that they exist. What game system does this current world take place in? Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition, uh, which I'm, I'm homebrewing a, a bit of it because I, I'm not actually a fan of 5th edition to be perfectly honest. It's a, I have some reservations about some of the mechanics. For example? I, I'm not super big on the, the combat system. I, I really feel like the game takes away from the RP system and, and makes it very combat oriented in certain uh, scenarios and aspects. And I feel that certain things are way overpowered and other things are underpowered. Uh, cantrips, for example, uh, the way certain cantrips are written, <laughs> they could be very overpowered and overused. I also don't like the way that traditional D&D lore uh, writes the weave. So, you know, the weave, the magical uh, net, blanket, it's a weave uh, that, that's, you know, over the, the worlds. I don't necessarily like the way that the weave works. I have my own idea of magic and I like to change the magic system to, to make it work with my idea of what the weave should be, which can get confusing for players that are hardcore D&D lore people. But I think it, it creates a better experience overall for the story that we try to build. Do you have a preferred version of D&D to use? I used a homebrewed version of D&D 2nd Edition for the longest time. Uh, I think D&D 2nd Edition is my favorite. Other than that, maybe 
and how does it operate differently than fifth edition that makes you prefer it? I, for me, it was more RP centric. You know, it was it was more about the role play. It was about uh, we we kind of ignored a lot of the rules because it, it it was second edition, and so it was it was more loose on what you could what you could do. Like fifth edition has a lot of changes, a lot of subsets, a lot of rule classes. Um, there's a lot of, you know, especially with, um, Unearthed Arcana that came out, you know, you know, how Wizards is constantly making updates to Unearthed Arcana and stuff like that. There's a lot of, a lot of fluff, a lot of material, a lot of things that are in there that it's just like, okay, well now I have to relearn this or, or update this and take account for that. And it's just second edition. We ran bare bones. We, we followed the second edition rules. We modified them to how we'd like them, how we needed them to go. And we just focused on a story. We focused on character progression and development and a story and uh, building a life for those characters and seeing how it would end, whether it be tragic or, uh, you know, that, that nice homestead on the lake that they were always pining for. Is the game you're currently GMing live or over the internet? Uh, it's over the internet. Most of my games have been over the internet just because of um, time constraints and spatial issues you know a lot of my players they're from all around the the country uh so it's very hard to meet with people locally as well just because uh it's hard for me to travel with my vision and with my work schedule it's uh not optimal is there anything you do during the games to enhance the ambiance of the game i have uh I've, i've been told that my players really enjoy my my voices my uh when I talk, I weave a uh, like a dreamlike state, and my players just kind of like fall into it, like they were listening to an audiobook or uh, you know, like classical music, and then they just kind of like get lulled into it, and they get immersed in the story that way. I guess I just have a good voice for it, but uh, other than that, I tried music, but I find that like certain kinds of music, it just it just becomes more of a, a hindrance and an encumbrance on the GM. Depending, of course, on like what you're doing and and how you're doing it, uh, you know. So to each his own, and to each instance, you know, better or worse example. But I, I personally just like to do uh, flat out, you know, speaking and enjoying the time and getting, you know, that more intimate feeling that you get uh, with just talking to people. Do you have a favorite NPC to speak as? Uh I, I don't know. I have so many. Uh, the, the meta info broker is one of mine. The, I have a character who I used to play and I basically maxed out his level. I played as him for three years, almost, almost, almost three years. I played as this character. He survived somehow and it was, he is, he is my, I NPC'd him because I, I just can't play him anymore. He's too, he's broken. He's like, Second edition, he was ported to third, uh, 3.5, and then he was ported again to fifth, and he's just super broken, and um, you can't play him. So I NPC'd him, and I think he's overall my favorite NPC. I don't know who my, who my favorite NPC is to voice, though. There's so many. Can we meet any of them? I'm going to try and do my goblin. It's one of my goblin voices. He was a cave dweller goblin. Think Schmeagle, but with like more intelligence and he's kind of grouchy and he he's he's very benign 
unless he tries to eat you when you're sleeping. He'll he'll try and like gnaw on your legs when you're sleeping. It's it's he's just a carnivorous goblin that lives in a cave in a swamp that was infested with a hydra. Um, so he hid in the cave. But let me see if I can do his voice. Ah, what are you doing in my swamp? What are you doing here? Why? Why have you come to bother me? Use pads. Something of that nature. But that that voice <laughs> is, is a little hard. Did you come up with the voice first or the character first? I, I came up with the character and I built the voice around the character. Have you ever started any characters with the voice? Uh, I, I don't think I ever have, no. When you are designing a new NPC, how do you go about the, frankly, most difficult part of creating an NPC for me, coming up with a name? Sometimes I pull it from thin air. It just it just comes to me. Sometimes if, if it's a... Um, I don't know. It's it's hard. Sometimes I feel like there is a weave in our own world. And when you create a story, sometimes you just pull a name from that weave. It just floats down to you and it just comes to you. And you're like, that's it. That's that's the right name. I need to use that name. That's that's who this person is. It, it's it's their character. It's who they are. And that name gives them life and it just comes to you. But other times it's just like, uh, I have to rack my brain and then I'm just sitting there trying to like Google like, you know, important figures in history and then translating their names to Elvish <laughs> and then c- trying to combine like a traditional Elvish name uh, with, uh, you know, uh, some sort of ironic or comedic spin of like a, uh, a base character. So for example, like if you have, if you have like a, um, a whimsical ranger who lives in the in the woods, uh, you know, protecting the poor and stealing from caravans and rich merchants, you know, the whole basically Robin Hood. You may try and make a name based off Robin Hood, make something witty uh, or uh, or interesting uh, and, and then like just shove in some Elvish or, or, or some funny word there that can make that character fit. And other times you're just like, no, I'm just going to give him a, a plain name. I'm just going to give him a, just a regular name. <laughs> and then and then some other times like I have recently it's just like I don't know what to name him so I'm going to name him like the most obvious thing like there's a priest uh, who is a very integral part to our new story and his name is father though F-A-T-H-E-R just straight out like our father uh, our, our father or father as in a priest and that's just his name and that's what his name is going to be for the whole campaign over the years have you developed a system to name NPCs on the fly that the party has forced you to conjure? I have like a reserve list of names just for generic one-shot NPCs. Or sometimes if the party uh, is trying to troll me, which has happened, uh, where they'll just constantly make me make NPCs, I will just systematically name them Bob number one through Bob number whatever. Um, Every NPC is named Bob, and everyone will kill Bob eventually. They will all die (laughs) in some way. Because they, um, they're, they're one-shot NPCs and my players know it and I do it when they try and troll me. But I have a, a general list of, like, the u- the like the bin of names that just gets, you know, used whenever. And they're generic enough so it usually works. Are there any NPCs in your current campaign that were 
intended to be one-shots that slowly developed and took a more central role? Yeah, um, Gerald is, um, his name's Gerald. He is a, uh, he is one of the captains of the guard. I originally, I originally intended him to be kind of the, the basic watch captain. Not very important, just like some guy who doesn't care about his job, who was just there to, to deal with miscreants and ruffians and who couldn't care less. And because of my players, Gerald turned into a level nine fighter who's actually the head of the entire Imperial City Guard. Well, not, not the Imperial City, not Oblivion, but, you know, the, the, the city government guard for the, the palace and everything. And he turned into like one of the major captains of the squads. Um, and so, you know, he became a, a hugely important character in the, at least the short term story of the game. And I actually had to then go back and redo a character sheet and everything for him. Aside from NPCs that have organically taken a larger role, are there any NPCs that the party have basically taken on as a pet? Because my players are watching, I I can't say too much, but they will. Uh, it is coming up, and it has to do with a... Uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say too much, but it has to do with an arm of Vorax. Do you know what that is? Not by name. It's um the honey badgers that'll mess you up. They eat your gold and your armor. They eat metal. They look like honey badgers, and they're they're vicious. They're they're not fun. But I have uh, some plans, and uh, it's gonna be interesting. But uh, in in another campaign, I actually had a party take in a pixie of all things and like go out of their way to help a pixie. And I had to like create a whole side quest for it. And it actually unfortunately ended up killing the party. They were trying to be good Samaritans and it went so far that it ended up killing the party. Uh, and we had a, we had a squad wipe and then that ended the campaign, <laughs> but uh, it was, it was interesting. So I've had, I've had some, some weird ones. Now, when you say it killed the party, do you mean the pixie itself? No, the the pixie had a, a problem where basically they went on a, a long quest, which eventually brought them to a genie. And for anyone that's listening, if you know anything about genies, they are not the uh, they're not your friend. And so they got a little bit greedy for their reward at the end of the quest. Uh, the pixie was a little mischievous too. I guess you could say that uh, her actions and uh, because she knew that the genie was there and she even said like your reward is in the, you know, at the end of this, this quest in the, in the final chamber, there is your reward. And there was a chest of treasures, but there was also a genie in, in a bottle and they got, they got greedy and they thought it was part of their reward and they they ended up sealing their own fate. How did the players take that? In in very good strides because we made it into a game. I you know they 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 knew that they had all the opportunity to get out, but they they played their characters well, and their characters consisted of a uh, a fallen paladin who's disgraced, a uh, a drunken dwarf who could not care about anything else besides you know uh, alcohol. And, uh, the ladies, uh, and a, uh, an elf who 
was half asleep most of the time. He was a narcoleptic elf, basically. And uh, we had a rogue. Yeah, it was. A, she was a rogue. And uh, she could not do anything but obsess about money. And so the paladin obsessed about immortality. The rogue obsessed about money. Uh, and then the, uh, you know, the, the dwarf wanted, you know, uh, desires of the flesh, basically. And, and then it, everything kind of just snowballed and they got the genie and they're like, well, we all get wishes and they sealed their own fate. And I have to commend my players for that one though, because they, uh, they played their roles well. They, they really did play their characters well, even though it ended up killing them. It ended that campaign. Did you start another one with the same group right away? No, uh, we couldn't, unfortunately. This was uh, when I was in high school, and it was actually the end of our junior year, and we kind of just had to break it off. And, uh, you know, we, we eventually picked up another campaign, but we had to kind of put that one to bed because we, we did play that out a little too much as well. That campaign was going on for the whole year. So the story was, was finished, and it was, a good, it was a good way to end it. Do you prefer to have a certain shelf life for your campaigns? No, I, I love my campaigns. All of my campaigns, they, in some way, they live on forever, uh, forever. Uh, as I said, you know, my, uh, my campaigns, all of my worlds, uh, can be crossed into. Every campaign has, you know, thin walls and in certain places and you can get into another world. So I love to see other players in new campaigns. Uh, explore another another world and and revitalize an old campaign um, whether it be after the story of that campaign ended or during some time in the middle of that campaign story um, I love to go back and revisit worlds and and I like to think that they all live on in some way um, and you know they're they're like books you can open them back up and keep reading with the party sealing their own fate, that was an organic way for the characters to die. But have you ever intervened when you felt a character shouldn't die? Yes, actually, in this campaign, we had a warlock who was very, very stupid. And he was not taking the campaign seriously at all. He was not being a serious player, which really bothers me sometimes. Because you can joke around and whatnot. But you have to respect the DM and also respect your party members. And if you if you can't actually play the game, you ruin it for everyone else. And anyway, but because of his actions, he actually died in the very first session of the game. Uh, our very first session, he died. He 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 was a warlock, and his pact was with a Nephilim, which is a higher level demon, you know, demonic class. You know, uh, I think is it a, is it a fiend? I can't remember if it's a fiend or a, a demon. I, I have to check the compendium. But it was a nephilim. The nephilim cursed his staff and you know incinerated the body. He was the nephilim was pissed because the nephilim wanted to use the warlock for a. He had a grand backstory that we were gonna try and play through, and it was gonna be an integral part of the quest line. Me, the DM, being annoyed, the nephilim got pissed, and so. Uh, the, he, his character exploded, big ball of flame, uh, and the only thing that was left was his charred black staff, which the Nephilim put a curse on. And one of the players in our party, his name was Mark, he was playing a, uh, well, he's still playing actually, a, uh, a dwarf, who is a, you know, religious cleric dwarf, uh, 
he's a battle cleric, and he he went up to the staff. He's like, "Oh, a staff! I'm gonna going to touch the staff," and I rolled a d100 because I'm like, "Okay, if he touches the staff, he's screwed." Because I know what curse is on this staff. If he touches the staff, it's going to prevent him from casting magic. And he's a cleric, which means the party is screwed. And it was more of like a, don't touch it, come back to it later. Like, I even said, like, you you as a cleric can tell that this staff is, because your your god is the god of, you know, um, his god and everything was the god of, you know, uh, protection and whatnot. And so it's, I'm like, you as a player can tell that this staff is evil. Uh, it is radiating a dark magic and it has a, a presence that makes you feel heavy and heavier and heavier as you approach that staff. Uh, you can feel that this is an essence of evil. And he's like, I'm gonna touch the staff anyway. I'm gonna touch it. And so I rolled a D100 and he got a 100. He, he beat the odds. He got a 100. And so, I called down his god, and I had his god whisper in his ear, and his god's like, no, don't touch. You'll seal your fate. And I I had the god, like, slam him back against the opposing wall and, like, prevent him from touching the staff. And then the god went away, and then he proceeded to go up to the staff anyway and touch it after the fact. And so he lost his ability to use magic. I mean, if a god tells you not to do something, you only have yourself to blame. Yeah, especially I, I rolled for it too. I because I, I feel that the, the DM should kind of give everyone that one off of like, no, d- 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 just just don't do this. Just don't do the the, mag- the staff is emanating a very powerful evil aura. You get heavier and heavier as you get near it. It's kind of the sign to not touch it. Not, you know, don't mess with it. But then even so, like, he had his saving grace, his Hail Mary. He rolled a 100 on a D100. His God came down and saved him. That's like a, a DM miracle. And he, unfortunately, as a player, he didn't listen as a, as a person. But, you know, it, it added to the story. And, you know, it's unexpected stuff like that, I guess you have to you have to be ready for as a DM. Personally speaking, how beholden do you feel to the dice rolls? I am but a servant to the chaos gods of the dice. I enjoy my dice rolls. I think that they really add an air of randomness to the game. It really adds that chance, that luck. I like when my players roll dice. A lot of times my players will say, well, you know, I, I, my, my level's so high. Why am I bothering to roll a dice? I, I have expertise and proficiencies in acrobatics why am i having to roll this check you know i literally can't get anything lower than an 18 or or something like that because they have like they have uh they have 18 decks or 19 deck no they he has 18 decks right now uh, he's got 18 decks and then he's got a, a plus eight to his acrobatics proficiency um and so he's like look no matter what i can't fail this and i'm like just just roll because there's always that chance that you're gonna get a one that something's going to mess up and it's going to change the outcome of your game of, you know, and it could end in your death. It could end in something positive. You never know. I've had players that should never have been able to do what they did and they rolled a crit. And I said, you know what? You crit, you did it. You, you muster the strength somehow. You pull this magical 
you know, spell out whatever you had in reserve. You have an I you remembered you had something, you did it. Cause you, you, the, the dice gods have smiled upon you. So I really do enjoy that air, uh, that, that, that air of randomness that, that it instills. Have you had a player react poorly to a character death before? Ah, uh, yes. I've had, I've had some issues. I've had a couple of them. Uh, one of them, they thought it was very unfair that a party member killed them. Uh, I'm not sure if anyone else has had this problem. I'm not sure if you've ever had this problem, but other party members having an argument and then they take it into the game or they even have the argument in the game and it just kind of escalates and then one of them just kills the other, whether it be in their sleep or, or in the middle of the game or whatever. It just, it happens. And sometimes the roles just don't work in their favor and it just doesn't work out. And there's nothing you could really do as the DM besides just say, you can't kill them. Your friendly fire is off, but then that 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 inevitably that takes away the freedom of the player to build their own story uh, for their character. You know, the DM has the story, but the player makes it their own, and so I feel that that really takes away from it. So I've had issues like that. I've had issues where I have intentionally killed a character because the player w- was ruining the game for other people, um, either by his choices or. Um, by his act, you know, his actions, his attitude, whatever it was. And I basically said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm killing this character because you're abusing this character in a certain way that is making everyone else not want to play this game. And they like, well, you can't do that. You know, it's my character. I get to play how I want. I'm like, yeah, but I'm the DM. And I say, you can't ruin everyone else's experience because you want to be a troll. You know, it doesn't work like that. So I, I've had, I've had a mixture of incidents, but they're usually fair. And, and most people usually don't complain because they, they see why their character died. And they always just make another one. Although some people get very attached. So, you know, it depends. Have you ever been in a situation where the rest of the party spoke up for that character? I don't think so. Usually if a character dies and it's for a bullshit reason, uh, it, it's usually a deserved bullshit reason. <laughs> If that makes sense, it's usually like so. I, I usually don't drop, you know, boulders on my players' heads just because Ken. It, it's usually everything happens for a reason. Uh, and or someone's being stupid and it has to happen because it's something really stupid. Like going off on your own in the middle of the night in the, in the woods, which are known by the locals in these parts to house strange creatures that stalk the woods at night and then you get attacked by displacer beasts and then you die so you know no one really when that when that kind of stuff happens it's just like well well no one no one's really going to complain having experienced outside of the game arguments making their way to the table do you do anything before or after the game to kind of decompress and make sure that there's not bleed between fantasy and reality? Uh, for myself, I don't take arguments into the game. Uh, I'm very good about that just because of my job and what I do every day. It's just, it's not my personality to take an argument into the game. I could, I could be fighting with you to the death and then five minutes later, game time. And then I just kind of take off that hat and I put on my other hat. I put on my, my, my DM 
uh, I have a fez. I put on my DM fez and I say, okay, we're, we're playing the game. And I don't take arguments into it, but players often do. And there's really nothing that I've really figured out how to do it, how to deal with that besides maybe trying to get your players to sort out the argument before you start the session and just be like, listen, listen, guys, you know, I'm, I'm your DM, but I'm also your friend. Tell me your side of the story. You tell me your side of the story. And I'll tell you that you're both wrong so we can get on with this game and we can be friends again. That's the only re- that's the only thing that I found that works, if, if, if at all. And do you do anything after the game if you feel like there may be tensions between two players? <sighs> I, I would say no, for the most part. I mean, if someone has a problem with another person on a, on a personal level then there's really not much you could do as a, as a person besides try and say, look, you guys may want to talk about this. Like what, what's bothering you? But if they're not willing to work with you, it's, it's very hard to put yourself in between them and try and resolve the issue. Now, if it's an issue with something that someone did inside the campaign, and that's another, that's another thing. I'm not afraid to call my players out and say, listen, I know you're pissed at, whatever his name is, but you can't do that to him. It's not fair to punish him and thus punish the rest of your party because you're pissed at him from something that he did outside of the game. And like, if I see that happening in the game, I I will talk to my players afterwards, after the game. And even during the game, I'll stop the game and I'll say, listen, you got to stop because you can kill a party like that. You can effectively kill a campaign because if it gets too bad, the party just won't continue and it'll break up the party and then that kills the campaign. What has been your favorite moment at the table as the GM? I don't know if I really have a, a favorite moment, so to speak. My favorite, um, as a GM, I, I think maybe it was when I had a party basically kill each other. There was one person in our party who wanted to become a uh, an all-powerful arch lynch, basically. He wanted to become the archmage, the archmage, but he also wanted to become, like, a lynch king. And so he ended up, like, murdering his entire party and, like, absorbed their souls, basically, <laughs> just to, to fuel his sick ritual to, um, to, to obtain the vast amount of power that he would need. So to, to like raise a necromantic art, uh, to, you know, to, to raise his, to his army because he was a necromancer and stuff. So it was just like, that was one of my favorite moments because I knew about it because I was the DM. I had to prepare for it and everything. We were talking privately through private messages on Skype and stuff, even while everyone was playing. And it's just like, okay, I know this is going to happen. I'm waiting for it. And it's like, you're sitting at the edge of your seat. You know that like the big action sequence is going to happen. And it's like a John Wick movie where you're waiting for him to get those 28 headshots in a row and you get that awesome action sequence and you know what's coming because it's a John Wick movie. And it's like you are the producer of that movie and you know what the script says and you're just waiting to see it unfold in front of you. And I think that was one of my best moments, one of my favorites at least. Um, I don't know if I have a top favorite moment though. That I've had so many great ones. Are you currently listening to any podcasts or watching any actual plays? I used to watch J.P. McDaniel, uh, It It Me J.P. 
and I watched his uh, full campaign, all like 200 hours of it. And I, I actually ended up like basically podcasting it because there's nothing to really look at it. So I just put it in the background and listened. But um, that actually got me through a good chunk of my final, like it's a college work. I would just put that on and I would just enjoy the campaign with him and uh, uh, Bregor and uh, Abigail and, and uh, uh, Tuttigub and all of his just characters and uh, Neil Erickson was the DM and it was just, it was great. He's one of my favorite, you know, role play uh, people out there, I think. But if you uh, want to find some more great ones, there's also misclicks. Uh, there's, you know, all of um, It Me JP stuff, but there's also like misclicks with, um, and all this stuff is DM'd by uh, Neil Erickson. And it's just, it's some great stuff. Uh, I really enjoy the campaigns and it's actually inspired me for some of my campaigns. Uh, with, with some of the stuff that they've gone through. Spending that much time watching or listening someone else DM, do you have concern about it influencing your DM style, or is that something that you think is good to bring in fresh perspectives? I actually think it's good to bring in fresh perspectives from time to time. I like to binge watch stuff. If you've ever seen my Netflix profile, you'll understand. In, in cases like Neil Erickson, you can find him at twitch.tv slash koibu uh, or reddit.com slash, you know, r slash koibu or uh, koibu, or no, so regalgoblins.com. Um, he's been a, a huge inspiration to me. Uh, I, I go to his live streams. I watch him and I have learned so much about world building and building a, a fantastic world and also really challenging your players with new innovative things uh, in terms of NPCs or or quest lines or, or challenges. And I really enjoy bringing that that new perspective to the table because um, as, a, as a creator, you kind of get enveloped in your own story sometimes. And a lot of times you may not consider that there are other possibilities. You may not look at all the angles and it may make your, your play style repetitive. And I think that taking in someone else's play style can inspire you to, you know, change your own and it can, it can transform your own style into something better, which helps you grow as a, a creator or as a dungeon master. And ultimately it'll help your players because they'll get a better experience. We are going to start wrapping things up, but before we do, I'm going to ask you some questions from the Pivo questionnaire. Pioneered by Bernal Pivot. Sure. What is your favorite word? I, th I think soliloquy. What is your least favorite word? Um, I've, I've never thought of that. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think I have a favorite word. In college, I was an English major, and so I, I've grown to love all words, <laughs> I think. Are there any that you've come to dislike either through people misusing them or fake words that have entered into the vocabulary? Uh, the word literally. How about misunderestimate? <laughs> oh, that too. Mis literally misunderestimate. Um, what, what, what is that? Is that, that other word? Um, ir irregardless. Uh, I have a lot of people say irregardless all the time. Which is not a thing. But those aren't really words. <laughs> I mean, they are, but they're not real, proper words. What turns you on, creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? 
a personality, someone's personality, having a conversation with someone and it just, it sparks something in your brain and depending on your chemistry with that person and depending on, you know, how you, your, your relationships and whatnot or, or how that person is in terms of their, their speaking ability and their charisma, it's just, sometimes it could be just a little spark that gives you an, a fleeting idea and then sometimes it, it sets your whole brain on fire and it's just like, yes, I have so many things in my head is just worlds are being built characters are being created cities and nations and stories it, just talking with people could really give you some of your best material ever i based a lot of characters off of conversations that i've had with people throughout the years what turns you off ignorance and immovability uh someone who's completely set in their ways and is so so ingrained in their own beliefs that they refuse to accept new information. They refuse to grow. They refuse to better themselves or change. People that just shoot down ideas for the sake of it not being their idea. People who stifle creativity, I think. Anything that, anything that stifles creative thought or expression is just a, it's just a, a no-no. What is your favorite curse word to hear from your players? Oh, um, it hasn't been used in a very, very long time. Um, barsul. Or barsul. It's a very guttural, dwarven word that basically means fuck. <laughs> what situation elicited that from the player? I think that the word originally came up in a uh, Christopher Paolini novel called Aragon. Or was it Eldest? Um, but it was one of the Aragon series. I think that the, for, a lot of people hear that word from. And, uh, my, uh, player in, in question, the first time it came up, it, w it was a dwarf. And it was when they got surprised by a black dragon who came out of a swamp. They were, it was like in like the bushes and the trees and stuff. And the, it was kind of just like laying there and they were on a ridge below trying to climb up and it just kind of came at them and the dwarf you know exclaimed barsul it's a beast and <laughs> or something of that nature uh I can't, it was so long ago i can't exactly remember but it was it was the funniest thing at the time and it's, it's just been one of my favorite things since um and i've also been a big fan of the uh you know christopher paolini's books uh and so it just it kind of it kind of just fits really well in the world what sound or noise do you love? Have you ever heard a really, really big cat purring, like, really deep in their throat? Something like that, like guttural, like, 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 deep. That, that's, that, it's, it's a pleasurable noise. What sound or noise do you hate? Uh, chalkboard. Nails on a chalkboard uh, is, is, is a good one. Or, um... Like squeaking, like really high pitched squeaking or static. I don't mind low pitched static, but like high pitched, it just it it grates your your mind. It just it's like nails on the inside of your head. What game system would you like to attempt? Warhammer Forty K. I I have very little experience in the Warhammer Forty K universe. Uh, I I tried getting a uh, a game going. I think it was Warhammer Forty K Heresy or something of that nature. Um. 
and it, I tried getting a game going in high school and it just uh, never, never came through. It all fell apart because we had different conflicting schedules and whatnot and we just never got to do it. And I'm, I was very sad. So that, that's probably the next on my list of, of things to try and, and maybe even just play as a, as a player, not even GM. What game system would you not like to attempt? I don't think any. I think I'm I'm always open to uh, to any and all game systems. I I enjoy quite a lot of them, from Vampire Masquerade to GURPS and D and D, Call of Cthulhu. I I enjoy most most of them, if not all of them. I haven't found one that I that I don't like, in some way. When your game concludes, what would you like to hear from your players? Oh, thank God, it's over. We can finally go to bed. Um, we usually end up playing, uh, until very early in the morning. We, we, we budget four hours and then we end up playing six or, or more. And by the time it's like 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning. And it's just like, we can't stop, but we have to stop. And it's finally over and we all get asleep for 16 hours. And finally, if you could travel back in time to watch one person sneeze, who would it be? Oh, to watch one person sneeze? Um, I don't... I don't know. Um, maybe... <clears throat> I, I don't... I don't know. Uh, to sneeze? I've never... Um, Put any thought to that question. If I if I had to uh, if I was if I was forced to, to pick a name, maybe um, maybe Sun Tzu of all people. It, it just be, be kind of funny because I always imagined him as this like stern faced, you know, guy sitting writing his manuscript, The Art of War, and just seeing him just sneeze all over the paper. I it, it's. That's the only thing I, I could think of. <laughs> Is there anywhere the insiders can find out more about you or follow you? Uh, sure. My name is Anthony. I'm the CEO of Bin Media. You can find us at uh, https colon slash slash www.bin.media, B-I-N dot M-E-D-I-A. We're a uh, multi-channel network. We, uh, we, we work with YouTubers and creators alike. We uh, try and bring out the, the creative side of people and and really work with them to make their passions and hobbies a, a career. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter. My personal account is at BlindGaming, B-L-I-N-D-G-A-M-I-N-G. And uh, you can follow me on Twitch at twitch.tv slash BlindGaming, same as the Twitter. Uh, I stream uh, whatever comes to mind, JRPGs. Uh, I like story-heavy games. Uh, right now I'm doing Persona 5. I'm about 40, 45 or 46 hours deep. Thanks for joining us today. No, oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's uh, It's been a blast. Inside the Master's Studio is an Audio Entropy original. You can head to audioentropy.com for more podcasts like All Along the Watchtower, Cosmic Call, or Let Me Tell You About Homestuck. If you're feeling generous, there's also a donate button on the website. All of that goes directly to paying hosting fees, as one of our members currently pays it all out of pocket. 
If you're in the Philadelphia area, July 22nd, at 4 p.m. at the Kitchen Table Gallery, you can see All My Fantasy Children live at the Philly Podcast Festival. I've been your host, Moon Rules, and I was joined this week by The Blind Gamer. And remember, if you feel your mind tugging you towards something, go full speed, because it's usually right. game like Dungeons and Dragons when you play it with only one character? What does a tabletop role-playing game designed explicitly for two people look like? What are some of the RPG stories we can tell in a two-player setting that we can't tell in a larger group? My name's Jeff Stormer, and on Party of One, every week I sit down with a different guest to explore the answers to these questions, as well as to tell some really engaging stories and just play some super fun games. Episodes range from funny to scary to sad to occasionally sexy, so you'll probably find a game in an episode you love. Check us out at soundcloud.com slash partyofonepodcast.